0: The Constitutional Convention, Act 1, The Alternative Plans. The Annapolis Convention, held in September of 1786, called for delegates to convene in Philadelphia on the second Monday in May of 1787. On that day, only four delegates from Virginia and four from Pennsylvania were present. Over the next two weeks, as delegates from most of the rest of the states slowly arrived in Philadelphia, those Virginians drafted a plan for government, and slowly disseminated that to the other delegates as they arrived. Finally, on May 25th, the Constitutional Convention met its quorum requirement and went through the process of electing officers, including selecting George Washington as its president, and selected a committee of members to put together a list of rules for the convention's proceedings. On May 28th, the convention adopted 16 rules and then suggested some additional ones to that committee. What we call the Constitutional Convention now began by adopting five voting rules of the Articles. First, that a quorum required a majority of the states to be present; Two, that each state was allotted one vote. And the three, voting was to be done by states and not by individuals. Four, each state could send up to seven delegates. And five, each state set its own internal quorum requirements. The convention then proceeded to, I guess you could say, break one of its rules by accepting without argument the presence of an eighth honorary delegate from the state of Pennsylvania, that being Ben Franklin. One of the more famous rules adopted was that of secrecy, which stated that nothing spoken in the House be printed or otherwise published or communicated without leave, in other words, without permission. James Madison later defended this to James Monroe in a letter stating that, quote, it will secure the necessary freedom of discussion unquote and this is what goes on to happen in this first act covering about the first four weeks of the convention some very significant debates take place primarily over three different plans for government three different plans that are offered by different uh, two different call them blocks of states and then one by an individual the first of those plans widely taught in textbooks and generally known by people who have a a passing knowledge of American history, we hope, is the Virginia Plan. And that is the plan put together by James Madison and some of those other early to arrive Virginia delegates that's disseminated among other delegates as they arrive. In fact, after the rules are decided on and officers elected on May 29th, the Virginia Plan is introduced and defended by Edmund Randolph. This plan calls for a creation of a national government consisting of a supreme legislature, judiciary, and an executive. It's important right now to take a moment and talk about definitions. The Virginia Plan proposed a national government. We nowadays often refer to the federal government, that which comes out of Washington, D.C. We also sometimes call it the national government. We don't call it the general government. We definitely don't call it the confederal government. But we have to understand that the terms national and federal in the late 18th century meant different things. Although they are sometimes used interchangeably in that time, the term national government typically referred to a centralized government with strong authority over all aspects of national life, including things like taxation, defense, foreign policy, and whatnot. This type of government was associated with that of the British monarchy and the centralized authority of the British government. Many American colonists had rebelled against that very idea during the American uh, Revolution. On the other hand, the term federal government referred to a decentralized government in which power was shared between a central government and individual states or provinces that had sovereignty themselves. This type of government was often associated with the political system of ancient Rome, the Roman Republic, that is, as well as the Swiss Confederation, which was seen as a model of decentralized government during the 18th century. And so when the Virginia Plan proposes a national government, understand that it is proposing not only the creation of a central government, but a central government of a certain type, a certain level of power in relation to the states. Keep this in mind as we move forward, and especially keep this in mind as you go to AmericanFounding.org and you read about the nature of the debates over these various plans. After the introduction and defense of the Virginia Plan on May 29th, we see over the next week or so a debate unfolding over the fundamentals of the plan. And in this debate, in these votes that take place and resolutions that are accepted and things that are changed and things that are rejected, we can start to see some of the the priorities that different groups and different individuals at the Constitutional Convention have. There will be a bicameral legislature. What is referred to then as the first branch, what we now call the House of Representatives, will be elected by the people. They agree that either branch, the first branch or the second branch of the legislature can initiate legislation. They agree to a national executive, what we now call the president. They don't agree as to whether this should be an individual or a group or how long they should serve for. But they agree that there should be a national executive whose job it is to carry out, to enforce the laws that that national legislature create. They give this ill-defined national executive the power of the veto. They establish a national judiciary. And throughout all of us, they debate terminology. They debate use of words and phrasing. To be perfectly honest, looking at Madison's notes on these debates, this seems like any kind of committee meeting. If you've ever had the pleasure of having to craft a mission or a vision statement with 5 or 10 or 15 other people giving inputs, you know what I mean. But the Virginia plan provides focus. It is something that everyone can point to and about which they can discuss. And while there is certainly debate, there's also agreement. There, in fact, is unanimous consensus that new states admitted to this union, whatever form it's going to take, will be admitted on equal legal footing with the original ones. They also postpone a lot of votes. There are a lot of decisions that it seems The convention was not yet ready to discuss things like the shape of the executive, uh, how amendments would be added uh, to the Constitution, whether there will be oaths of office, things like that. There are all manner of things that are voted on and accepted and things that are set aside for future consideration. On June 6th, James Madison and Roger Sherman discuss this question of whether or not people are happier in smaller or larger states. And this gets to this core argument at the American founding as to whether or not it's possible to have what Madison referred to as an extended republic. This, in a way, uh, foreshadows Madison's position that he lays out in Federalist 10, Federalist 10, where he discusses how an extended republic could be used to break the, the worst things that factions could do. So Madison is a fan of and, uh, and and a proponent of the the positive potential of an extended republic, whereas Sherman is more of the mind that people are going to be happier in a smaller republic in smaller communities. This harkens back to Montesquieu. And so the debates that take place over that first week and a half or so around the Virginia plan are both there are there are debates of of procedural nature of um some structural issues of this possible new form of government, but also philosophical about what, is, what kinds of things make up the foundation that one would lay under good government. One thing, though, that comes up a number of times is the idea of representation and how it will be determined in the legislative branch. The idea that the members of the first branch be elected popularly by the people at large within the states, is what gives the Virginia plan uh, the moniker of the, the big states plan, the large states plan, because obviously those states with larger populations would be able to elect more of these people. The discussion, though, also focuses on how the second branch, what we now call the Senate, how will they be chosen? Will they be elected popularly? Will they be elected by the members of the first branch? I mean, imagine that. Imagine if the members of the Senate were elected by the members of the House the original solution, that which of having the um, members of the Senate elected by the state legislatures, that is also kicked around as a possibility. Lengths of terms of office is also an issue that is discussed. In short, for about a two-week period of time, the Virginia plan is picked apart, its various proposals debated, some of them accepted, some of them amended, some of them cast aside. This goes on until the 13th of June. On the 14th of June, William Patterson of New Jersey who incidentally was born in Ireland, and I don't know if you know this, but roughly 20-25% to of the delegates at the Constitutional Convention were immigrants. Anyway, William Patterson submits the nine resolutions of what we now call the New Jersey Plan. As opposed to the national government that the Virginia Plan seeks to establish, the New Jersey Plan, as Patterson put it, was purely federal. And so the nine resolutions of the New Jersey Plan, they sought to restore the single chamber of the Articles of Confederation. And representation would be, by state, equal, regardless of population size. It did give the power to tax and regulate interstate commerce to this government, but it absolutely got rid of the idea of popular representation at the federal level, at the general government level. Each state would be represented equally at that level, And understand here is the difference between your federal and your national government. The federal government is made up of separate sovereignties, separate states that join together for certain specific things to be done in concert, but leaves internal governance largely to themselves. And that's why they are represented equally at the general government level, because they are seen as equal players, each state its own sovereignty. This is very different from a national government again, as proposed by the uh, Virginia Plan. Patterson and the proponents of the New Jersey Plan essentially admit that the Articles of Confederation have flaws. There are weaknesses in the existing general government, and so they offer augments to its powers. However, they still insist on retaining the primary sovereignty in the country at the individual state level. And so like the Virginia Plan earlier, the New Jersey Plan is debated for the next several days until June 18th, when Alexander Hamilton of New York offers his plan, the third of the alternative plans. And the Hamilton plan is a radical departure from either the Virginia or the New Jersey plan, in that it recommends the creation of a robust national government, a strong national legislature and national executive. Hamilton wants a Republican government, but he wants one that has the energy, it's a term that's often used, the energy to do the good things that it needs to do or will need to do in order to ensure the protection of rights and the maintenance of that Republican government. Hamilton's plan is not debated. And in fact, there are some historians who believe, and we, haven't, we don't have direct evidence of this, but there are some historians and Hamilton scholars who believe that Hamilton deliberately promoted what he recognized would be seen as an extreme position. And so consider this, the proponents of the New Jersey plan, they want less power to the general government, more power at the States. The Virginia plan proponents are are sitting on the opposite side of that argument. Hamilton is far, far beyond what the Virginia plan would have proposed. And so there are some who believe that Hamilton did this on purpose to moderate opposition to the Virginia plan. There is no way of knowing this for sure. And as a matter of fact, about a week and a half later, Hamilton leaves the convention uh, for a period of time. We do know this, though, that on June 19th, the day after Hamilton's long speech, the New Jersey plan is rejected, and an amended version of the Virginia plan is brought back up for discussion. This amended version of the Virginia plan is a product of several weeks of compromise and discussion within the convention and doubtless all manner of discussion over dinner and drinks and walks around Philadelphia and in the inns where the delegates were staying. And so the first act of the Constitutional Convention comes to a close on June 19th. The Virginia Plan, in broad brushstrokes, if you want to say from the 30,000-foot view, the the broadest ideas of it and some of the details have been accepted. There will be three branches of government. The legislative branch will be made up of two separate chambers. This new government will have more power than that which the government under under the Articles of Confederation held. The big question, though, lingering is representation. How will representation be determined? And that's where we will pick up in Act 2. Thanks, as always, for listening to the companion podcast to AmericanFounding.org. You will find a link to the article used as source material for this episode in the notes of this show. And from that page, you'll also find links to other essays, articles, and original source documents related to these early debates held at the Constitutional Convention.